The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And so she ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and I don't know where they've put him. And so Simon Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. They were running, and the other disciple outran Peter. He arrived at the tomb first, stooped down, looked in, and saw the linen cloths lying there, but he would not go in. Now, Peter arrived, went straight into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the others, folded up by itself. Now, the other disciple who arrived there first went into the tomb. He saw and he believed. You see, they didn't yet understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So the disciples returned home. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down to look into the tomb and saw two angels dressed in white, seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. She turns and sees Jesus standing, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. He says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom is it you're looking for? And she, thinking he's the gardener, says, sir, if you've taken the body, tell me where you've put it and I will go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And he said, do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my disciples and tell them, my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. And so Mary came to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all that he had told her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired John to record these words of Scripture that gives us this window into Easter morning, this resurrection day. And we pray that as you open this word now for us, that we would see that that same power working now on this Easter day in our lives. Come Holy Spirit, open our hearts to receive your word this day, that we would believe. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to be seated. What are we longing for? What are we really longing for? As we come to this Easter weekend, there's a long list I'm sure we could imagine of what we're longing for. Some of us are longing for a rest. Some of us are longing for food, for fellowship, companionship. Some of us who are going through really hard circumstances are longing for relief and for a change. And I'm sure if we looked out over the last year, we could together list a whole lot of longings. 
What are we longing for? But the gospel would tell us that above all of those other longings, all those longings we could list, some good longings, some bad longings, above them all, human beings have the greatest of longing, and that longing is to go home. Our greatest longing, whether we know God or not in our lives, our greatest longing at a DNA deep level within us is this longing to go home. We want to go home. When I was 13, I ran away from home. It lasted for about 10 hours, but it was my moment of big rebellion. During those 10 hours, I really wanted to make the rebellion stick, and so I managed to pierce my ear. I did it with a potato and a pin. I do not recommend it. At the end of those 10 hours, as angry as I still was, there grew up within me this longing that said, I want to go home. And I did. And my parents had the best parental reaction you can have in that moment. They said nothing about the ear. Nothing. I'm sure they wanted to, but they said nothing. They ignored it. Now, to this day, my mother loves to, in you know, mixed company, to, in the middle of a conversation, just say, oh, Paul, you have a hole in your ear. Because you know what's interesting? It never grew over. It never did. It never did. I can still put an earring through it. Don't worry, I won't. But I, I'll leave that to the student ministry staff. But no, I, I, it never grew over. My mom loves to do this. She'll say, Paul, I see you've got a hole in your ear. She'll look around the table and say, why don't you tell us about that story? She loves to do it at the worst moments. It's like there's a bishop visiting. Bishop, do you see the hole in my son's ear? Whether we come out of healthy homes or whether we come out of broken homes, and if you come out of a very broken home, you may say, my goodness, that story you just told is ridiculous. That doesn't describe brokenness at all. But whether we come out of a healthy home or a broken home, there is longing within each of us to go home. Ultimately, to go home with God. Go home to God. To live with God. I mean, even as an atheist, before I became a believer... I knew that longing deep within myself. I wouldn't articulate it at that time as a longing to go home with God, but it's exactly what was going on. Here's how I articulated it when I was an atheist. I would say to myself regularly, I need to find some purpose. I need to find some meaning. I need to find something that will last in this life. What of all these things I'm doing, will any of them survive me? And so within that longing, as even as an atheist, I was truly in my heart of hearts longing for God. Longing to be at home with God. St. Augustine, I think, put it best when he said, you have made us, O Lord, for thyselves, right? You've made us for thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. And so for John, as he opens up this Easter morning story, it's really the story of coming home. It's a homecoming story. That's what Easter's about, coming home. Homecoming. Now, I, I got to say, as a as new uh, immigrant from Canada, 
just in this last year, coming down here to be the new rector at Christ Church, uh, it's, there's been a lot of cultural transitions. Probably the most difficult of all was understanding homecoming. <laughs> we don't have that where I come from. Well, we were Googling homecoming because I have four daughters. And they Googled homecoming, and you know what they found? They found the mums. <laughs> and my daughters came to me horrified, and they said, Daddy, what is this foreign land that you are taking us to? <laughs> homecoming is what Easter's about. For John... It's a story of humanity being invited back home. And we know that because John sets his Easter gospel in a garden. It's in a garden. And if we look back at the beginning of the story of humanity, back in Genesis, our first home as humanity was in a garden. That was the home that God gave us. You look back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, and we read, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Eden, the garden. And what's interesting is the fact that it says he planted, the Lord God planted the garden. Literally, it means he gardened the garden. He was the gardener. The Lord himself was the great gardener of that garden. He planted it. He sustained it, he provided for us, and we lived in the garden with God. This was our origin story, and it's written into the core still to this day of what it means to be human. We began living in a garden with the God of heaven and earth. And it was such a close relationship that in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, it says, hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, talk about intimacy. They could hear God's footsteps in the garden. They lived with God, and God lived with them. Perfect intimacy, perfect communion. That's what we had, and that's what we lost. Because as we know, that story goes on to say that Adam and Eve ultimately rejected the Lord who they lived with. And in rejecting his rule in their lives, in deciding that they wanted to do it their own way, Sin, rejection of God's way, resulted in our expulsion from that garden. We were sent away from our home. Banished. As Genesis chapter 3 tells us in verse 23, the Lord says to them, Therefore God sent them out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which the man was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and he placed the cherubim, the angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, part of the banishment is in fact a mercy because within the garden there's the tree of life and if Adam and Eve were to eat of the tree of life in their state of sin, it would perpetually put them in a place of sin and death eternally. They would just live in their sin eternally. It would be a living hell. And so God, for their sake, sends them out. But also what comes in the midst of this brokenness in the garden is death. Death for the first time arrives. Death was never part of the equation in our garden home. 
Verse 19, God says, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, some people, I remember when I was an atheist, I would struggle with the whole concept of God. Uh, people would uh, show up knocking on my door, wanting me to tell me about Jesus, and they would often quote Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. And I would say, well, that makes God kind of an ant bully, doesn't it? You know, I sinned, I did something wrong, so he's going to kill me? You know, we'd have these arguments, and, and I'd get them off script, and they'd say, um, we'll come back tomorrow. Um, but the reality is, as I became a Christian and, and began struggling through that, the reality is that God wasn't vindictive in bringing death upon us. We brought it on ourselves. You see, think about it this way. We're in the garden. We're with God. God is the source of life, right? God gives life. He sustains life. We're in the garden with God. We live. We reject God. We're apart from God. And what happens? We've separated ourselves from God, but we've also separated ourselves from life, therefore death. We brought death on ourselves in our rebellion. We're banished, we have death, and we have a longing, therefore, within each of us, a longing to go home. Then Easter morning comes. And John tells us, as he begins his Easter gospel, in chapter 19, that we're going to go back to the garden. See, in chapter 19, verse 41, we read that in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. John goes back to a garden. The tomb in which Jesus is buried is in a garden. And you may say, Paul, you're stretching it here. Come on, there's lots of gardens. Well, try this on for size. In chapter 20, verse 1, as he begins further into his gospel story of the Easter day, what does he say? He says, early on the first day. Those are his opening words of chapter 20. Early on the first day. The first day? Yes, the first day, John is saying. We're going right back to the beginning. It's a new first day. We're starting all over. We're back in a garden. It's the first day. And what happens in chapter 15? When Mary, in that garden on this new first day, meets Jesus standing, who does she mistake him for? The gardener. She, thinking he's the gardener, says, Sir, if you've taken the body, tell me where you've put it. Mary, John is doing this on purpose. Mary is in the garden on the first day and she finds the gardener. There's a woman, there's a human being in the garden again on the first day and there is with her the gardener. She meets the gardener. But how can this be, right? I mean, we've been expelled from the garden, right? We, we've, we can't go back. We've been banished. If we meet the Lord face to face because of our sin, we will die. How could we possibly come home? If we go back to the garden, if we meet the gardener face to face, someone's going to die. And that's exactly what happened. You see, the reason that we can be in the garden, that John is telling us this good news, this gospel, is that in the garden, someone has died. In that garden that we're invited back into to live with the gardener, we find a tomb. Do you know in the gospel, those first uh, eight verses of chapter 20, the word tomb comes up nine times. Nine times. If you count the preceding couple of verses that I read before, 11 times. 
Tomb, 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 tomb. Okay, we get it, John. There's a tomb in the garden. But John is saying, but do you really get it? You're being invited back to the garden to meet the gardener, and there's a tomb in the garden. Because, remember the results? The result of our rejection of the gardener, the result of our sin was rejection and death. And so for us to come home, a death needs to be offered. Someone does need to die, but it's not us. And that's the miracle of Good Friday and Easter, is that in order to bring us home to the garden, God put another in our place. And we can see that in one way when we look at verse 11. In verse 11 in chapter 20, there's this interesting moment. You remember that bit where Mary is looking into the tomb and all of a sudden she sees two angels? And you're like, where did the angels come from? Like John and Peter didn't see the angels. Why are these angels here now? And the reason is the angels are giving Mary a picture. It's, it's a little teaching moment. Okay, you want to understand why the tomb is in the garden, Mary? Do you want to understand how important this is? Well, let's give you a little image. You see, the position of the angels has got the gospel right in it. Mary looks in and sees where the body of Jesus had laid. And it says that there's an angel on the one end and on the other end, where his head lay and where his feet lay. In the middle is where Jesus' body lay. And you, and you might think, as you're, as you're racking through your Old Testament categories here, you're thinking, that does sound like a similar image. If you, if you, maybe not your Old Testament categories, maybe your 1980s film categories, you're thinking of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Can you imagine a picture in Scripture where there is a surface with two angels on either end? It's the lid of the Ark of Covenant. It's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and it's called the mercy seat. You see, in the Old Testament, after our fall from grace, after we were separated from God, God still wanted to interact with us. He needed to interact with us. And so for him to be able to speak to Moses as he led Israel, for these, these temporary moments of interaction with a sinful, broken humanity, God said, I want you to erect this cover for the Ark of the Covenant. And it's going to be called the mercy seat. You're going to have a cherubim, an angel on each end. And in the middle between the angels is where I will sit and I will meet with you. That's what Exodus 25 says. God would meet Moses in between the angels on that mercy seat, the mercy seat. It was merciful because God could not dwell with humanity. And so what was required for that mercy to happen is that there would be, as Leviticus 16 says, you would have to have a sacrifice. You'd have to get an animal, a goat or a lamb or something, and that animal would have to die. Why? Well, that animal's bearing the consequence of your sin. Someone's got to die. It's either you or the animal. I mean, we had a petting zoo yesterday out in the lawn here. It was beautiful on Saturday morning. And of course, in my head, I'm thinking to myself, this is really cute, and all the kids are you know, petting the animals. Go back 2,000 years, there's animals outside the church. It ain't for a petting zoo, though. It's like, go pick your goats so you can come and meet with God because someone's going to die, you or the lamb, you or the goat. And so it was that at the middle and the mercy seat between these angels, there would be this blood of the goat, the blood of the lamb sprinkled and so in that moment, the sacrifice had been made. Temporarily, God could come and meet with Moses. 
right? There'd be a moment, a temporary moment of meeting. And then when you look in the tomb and you see Mary, see this area where the body of Jesus laid and an angel on each end, we realize Mary's looking at the mercy seat. The tomb contains the mercy seat, angels on both sides. But of course, instead of blood of a lamb sprinkled in the middle, the middle is where the body of Jesus lay. The body of Jesus was the sacrifice. God paid the ultimate sacrifice so that sin could be paid for, so that we could have communion with him. We could come back into his presence. Someone has to die. Well, someone has died. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Jesus says, hanging on the cross on Good Friday, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God had placed on Jesus everything broken in you and on me, and he bore it instead. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might have peace with God, that we could be again with God. And so there's the mercy seat. The mercy seat, which is found in the midst of this tomb. It was amazing in Romans chapter 3, Paul actually refers to Jesus as the mercy seat. There's a word in, in the New Testament called propitiation. It's one of those words that typically we, in our Bibles, will translate another word. We'll say atoning sacrifice. But that's not actually what propitiation means. It literally means mercy seat. Romans chapter 3, we read these words you've heard before. Maybe you heard them on a track that was handed to you at the door by someone trying to convert you. I heard this before. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, sure, I own it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it goes on to say, not only have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we are justified, made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a mercy seat. God put Jesus forward as a mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. See, the amazing thing that happens here, friends, is that we have Jesus bearing our sins, Jesus as the mercy seat, welcoming us in. How can humanity go back to the garden? I mean, we're banished. We can't be in God's presence. Someone's going to die. Well, someone did die. Mary looks into the tomb and sees the mercy seat as this teaching moment that says, do you understand, Mary, the cost of what it was to bring you home? The body of Jesus lay between those angels. But here's the, here's the amazing thing, is that the body of Jesus doesn't remain between those angels in that tomb. See, it's past tense. The body of Jesus had been there. Now all that's left are these burial cloths. Instead, Jesus is now risen. The sacrifice, the one who paid the price, is now alive. She turns in verse 14, and she sees the sacrifice standing next to her. And he says, Mary. Mary, which is her first name. It's her personal name. It's a glorious moment. He doesn't say to her, risen from the dead, behold, mortal. He doesn't say, Mary Magdalene. He doesn't use some sort of Texas, you know, culture and say, Miss Mary. We're going to get used to that, by the way. We like it. But he says, Mary. It's her personal name. I know you, Mary. The same voice that had spoken her name all those years that she knew him in life, now he speaks to her on the day of resurrection. Mary. Mary. 
Mary, you're in the garden. Mary, I'm in the garden. You're in the garden with the gardener, Mary, and it's okay. And then he says of these twisted, broken, deserting disciples in verse 17, he says, tell my brothers. Can you imagine Jesus referring to these deserting, denying disciples as brothers? He can only do it because of that mercy seat. He paid the price. You see, Jesus risen from the dead, the sacrificial lamb now risen, is this demonstration that it worked. It really, really worked. Not only did he overcome our death, or our sin, but he overcame our death. Death no longer has dominion. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? It has been swallowed up in Christ Jesus. And what this means, friends, is this invitation back to the garden that happens on Easter morning because not only is sin taken care of, as Hebrews 9 says, once for all, but because he's risen from the dead, it works and it's eternal. Death is done. So you don't have to worry about coming back to the garden and think, well, I'm good for this week. We'll see what happens next week. No, you're back in. Death is no longer having dominion over you. And in case you missed it, just note that the gardener has done all the heavy lifting here. This is not something that Mary's earned. This is certainly not something the disciples have earned. It's not something that you and I have earned. It's all gift. It's all grace. The gardener did it for us. I was this week uh, on Friday, my 14-year-old um, asked if she could watch the Passion of the Christ film. And it's one of those things parents have to decide. Am I gonna, is this the year I'm going to let them watch? I mean, it's gruesome. It's real. It's legit. I said, sure, but she was watching with a friend, so I sent her a text. You know, this is how parents and kids sometimes talk these days, right? I said, hey, you're watching Passion of the Christ. How's it going? And I got, you know, a typical 14-year-old response. It's cool. Well, you know, at least she responded. Um, and then I wrote back, and I'm like, well, um, you know, there's that part coming. It's really, really good. You know, where, and it's my favorite part, and it shows the grace. And it says, you know, where Jesus falls and his mother receives him. And he says to her as he's going up to Calvary, he says, see, mother, I go to make all things new. And I, I'm like writing this text, and I'm like crying. I'm like, oh, it's so good. And I put like a little tear emoji there, and I, you know, sent it to her. And she writes back and says, yeah, it's cool. And I said, really? And then she said, Dad, I'm trying to watch Jesus die. Leave me alone. <laughs> it's a good word. It's a good word. But it's this grace. See, I go to make all things new. Jesus does the work in our lives. What are you longing for? What am I longing for? At the core of what it means to be human, we long to go home with God. Do you want to come home? Do you want to come home? Then come home. Because of Easter, the garden is open. The gardener is inviting you. If you walk in the garden, he receives you. If you walk in the garden, do you know what happens? Lo, Jesus meets us. Risen from the tomb, lovingly he greets us, scatters fear and gloom, make us more than conquerors through your deathless love. 
Bring us safe through Jordan to thy home above. Thine be the glory, risen conquering sun. Endless is the victory thou or death has won. Come home. The gardener waits. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.